I hope everyone's having a lovely Tuesday afternoon. Since we didn't have time for our usual Monday chat, please to welcome to the show now Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how you doing here on this Tuesday? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Sorry we uh, had to bump you, but uh, thanks so much for being flexible. So, uh, yesterday we did see a report into anti-Indigenous discrimination in British Columbia's healthcare system, which found hundreds of examples of prejudice and racism in health facilities across the province. I guess I'll just kind of get your general thoughts on sort of the overall findings here. I mean, I don't think anyone was overly surprised when we saw that, yes, there is obviously some racism racism that does exist within our healthcare system. Yeah, it's not surprising at all. Um, and I think we'd, you know, heard things that were alluding to this. Um, for example, the allegations that came out earlier this year about uh, a game involving guessing the blood alcohol level of Indigenous people, those allegations weren't substantiated. But what was learned as a result of the investigation is that the racism against Indigenous people in the healthcare system is far more systemic and far more significant than just a single instance of games being played on that on that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, that was, I think, kind of one of the highlights that, that started this whole investigation in the first place, right, was this uh, allegation of this, uh, I believe they called it the Price is Right game for guessing the blood alcohol level of Indigenous patients. No uh, substantiated proof about that specifically. I'm sure it went on. Um, you know, there was some proof that, yes, things like that do happen, but not a uh, quote-unquote, uh, you know, overly organized game in that respect. But nonetheless, 84% um, of Indigenous respondents to the survey that was done uh, to put this report together said they did experience some form of racism in the healthcare system, and more than half of Indigenous healthcare workers also saying they experience racial prejudice at work, mostly from uh, comments from colleagues. Uh, I guess you know you're a lawyer here, and when we're talking about people who go in to receive care, and clearly there's going to potentially be impacts as a result of being treated differently uh, based on the color of your skin. So this ha must have some um, sort of use for you in the legal field as well, knowing that, um, I mean, we knew that this kind of stuff was happening, but now to have it actually substantiated, I think is probably pretty significant. It is significant. Um, it's significant in part because it validates what a lot of Indigenous people in Canada have been saying for years and years and years, that they haven't been treated fairly when seeking health care. And it's also significant because it identifies specific issues that can be addressed, whether it's cultural sensitivity training, whether it's hiring more Indigenous liaisons, whether it's policing the workplace conduct that keeps Indigenous people from entering the health care fields and remaining in the health care fields. All of those things now can be addressed, and the government can start to turn their attention to specific action to try to eliminate or mitigate these problems. Does this, I don't want to say gives you like ammo in the court system, right? If someone were to, to come to you and say, I was treated differently because of the color of my skin, I didn't receive the care that I was uh, deserving of, and therefore maybe I have long-term health complications or experienced some other problem as a result. Can this report be used to help fight those types of cases? The report itself probably won't have much evidentiary value because it's not about any particular person's experience um, 
and and it's not evidence that any particular person um, specifically suffered that. There were stories that were recounted in the report, but um, many of them were anonymized. But what it does provide is a factual background um, in cases where there are allegations of medical malpractice um, or improper care that are being levied against medical practitioners um, that allows people to ask for punitive damages. If they adduce the evidence of the discrimination, if they if they prove that discrimination occurred in their case, it's more likely for punitive damages to be awarded because the issue is not just limited to an individual experience, but because it's systemic. And the award of punitive damages is also likely to be greater because the the court will want to deter that type of conduct from continuing in the future. Okay. Um, I think uh, that that's pretty much all I had on that specifically. I know it's a very extensive report, but I guess any other, um, you know, benefits to it uh, in regards to the legal field here that you can kind of take from that outside of, of having sort of that, that knowledge now that uh, you can kind of backtrack on to say this stuff exists and therefore we can apply some of the information to future cases, not necessarily in an evidentiary way, but you can still kind of use that information. But any other benefits to you in the legal field from this uh, particular report? Well, one of the things that has been difficult for uh, lawyers and for legislators since uh, the BC government made a promise to um, uh, to implement the terms of the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is what does that look like? And this allows a foundation from which legislation can now be drafted um, and cases can be litigated dealing with the implementation of some of the under promises in British Columbia in the healthcare field. Switching gears a little bit here to the courts itself. Um, so you've talked a little bit about with this with me in the past or sort of how we have adapted the court system as a result of the pandemic. Of course, things shut down right in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic being declared on a global level. And then as things started to slowly kind of open back up, of course, adjustments were made to try to address and make sure people were safe when they were entering the courtrooms and the courthouses themselves. Um, Last week, though, at least 10 test positive COVID-19 cases occurred at Surrey and Abbotsford courthouses. Uh, I don't know if that number has gone up uh, since uh, late last week, but that's the latest number I have is 10. Clearly, there's some gaps that are existing here within the court system. You say there's some cracks in their COVID-19 safety plan. I want you to kind of uh, take me through some of what you have identified. Obviously, you spend quite a bit of time in the court system, in the courthouses themselves. What are you seeing as some of the existing cracks and gaps that are there right now? When we went back to court and when things started picking up again, there was a lot of diligence that was being done um, right at the door of the courthouse. Sheriffs have to engage in a health check with individuals, make sure that they're not experiencing symptoms, that they haven't traveled outside the country, they haven't had any close contacts with a person who's positive for COVID-19 to essentially verify that people are safe to enter the courthouse. That diligence has dropped off as we've, you know, been open now for six six or seven months um, since those rules came into place. Oftentimes when I'm entering the house, I'm asked, how are you feeling today, counsel? And not asked the specific questions that I'm supposed to answer in order to be permitted entry into the courthouse. When it comes to court staff, the people who are working in the building, who are having the most contact with members of the public and having the most contact with outside individuals, as well as Crown Counsel, whose offices often are inside the courthouses themselves, they're not being screened at all at the door. I've witnessed several instances of court staff and Crown Counsel just bypassing the screening altogether. And this 
you know, court staff are among the people who tested positive in the last week in these courthouses. So there's a real dropping of the ball on making sure that the people who are coming into the courthouse are coming in in a safe way. One of the things, too, that kind of caught my attention, I heard uh, someone else talking about this specific instant, instance and, and sort of what can be learned from it, and it kind of related things back to what we're seeing in long-term care with the single-site order that exists. I don't think that's something that has to be permanently implemented into a court system, but during this pandemic, it makes sense. We're not talking about vulnerable populations for the most part, I don't think, where, for those who are in the courts. So, I don't, like I said, I don't think this has to be a permanent switch, but during this pandemic, I think it would make sense to have a single-site work order for, for some positions, sheriffs, um, you know, who are bouncing around from different courthouses. It makes sense to have a single sort order in place here as well. Do you agree that maybe there could be more done to make sure that, I mean, we're talking about contact tracers who are having a very difficult time as it is. And if we're going to be moving people around to different courthouses, that's going to make their job even harder if something were to happen in terms of an outbreak or a cluster. Do you believe that that would be something that would be beneficial in this case as well? That would absolutely be beneficial in this case, especially because sheriffs are at a significant risk because they do the transport of patients from the jails. And there are many jails where there are or have been COVID-19 outbreaks. Uh, They transport them to the courthouse um, and then they enter the courthouse and they do other duties there. They have contacts with other uh, sheriffs. They have contacts with defense lawyers. They have contacts with Crown Counsel. They have contacts with the judges. It would make sense if we've got a single site order in, um, in care homes to also have a single site order when it comes to sheriffs. If we look at what we're doing in schools, even though, you know, children aren't as vulnerable to COVID-19 scientifically than adults or, or the elderly, if we look at what we're doing in schools, you're keeping classroom cohorts together. You're having teachers only teach at one school at a time. There isn't a single site order, but there's a single site practice that's in place. And that's never been contemplated or put into effect in our court system. And the result has been now that we're seeing exposure events and transmission take place in court. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is a, probably a good way to, to learn this lesson based on what we're seeing here uh, in recent days. And, and, and hopefully we'll see some changes as a result as well. Uh, one, one more thing, one more quick question that I have for you, and then I will let you go here. But uh, Kyla, I saw a quick retweet from you before I jumped in the booth and talking about um, someone offering free legal consultation to anyone who has had anti-maskers targeting their business. It's in response to anti-maskers out there. Some groups recommending that uh, P- BC, British Columbians violate violate the public health order in stores um, and and in hospitals in pursuit of quote-unquote human rights. So I was just curious in response to that, sort of what legal course could be taken in these types of situations outside of that $230 fine that currently exists, right, that can be laid for people who who aren't wearing a mask and are not complying with the mask mandate order. Is there anything that can be done in these sorts of larger scale things when we're talking about a business who potentially could be getting targeted by not like one or two individuals, but, you know, a, a group of people? What What can be done legally in that kind of situation? Uh, One thing that could be done in that situation is a business could apply for an injunction to bar the people who are pro- or who are harassing customers or who are openly defying the, the mask order um, from entering the premises or from coming within a certain distance of the premises. So those people can be legally prevented. We see injunctions used um, for the, uh, the homeless encampments throughout BC for some of the protest sites that we've seen in the last little while. They can also be used to protect these businesses.
Okay. I just wanted to know, because I know there are businesses that are dealing with this problem here in Kamloops as well. I haven't seen any uh, groups targeting them, but individuals is, you know, potentially going to lead to groups down the line. So I just wanted to have that information. But Kyla, thank you so much for the time as always. Sorry we missed you on Monday, but happy to have you on Tuesday. And uh, thanks so much for the time as always. Thanks for having me. All right. There you go. That is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee.